You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Kevin Kelly is the co-founder of Wired Magazine. He is also editor and publisher of the Cool Tools website. He co-founded the ongoing Hackers Conference and was involved in the launch of The Well, the pioneering online community started in 1985. His books include New Rules for the New Economy and Out of Control. His new book is What Technology Wants. Thank you for joining me, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here. Kevin, you know what interested me so much about your book was, as I read it, I think, this is nonfiction. This is speculative nonfiction. But it's also, I think, a very personal book. And this book, when I read this, I did not expect to encounter the pronoun I as often as I did. Mm-hmm. I think um, that was, for me, a, uh, a case of last resort. My hope when I was writing this book, which is really an attempt to kind of see if there was a theory about uh, technology, if there was some kind of framework for it. My hope was that I would be able to identify the four or five professors and philosophers who had thought about this deeply and had answers, and I could go and interview them and kind of reword and popularize their deep thoughts into making something accessible. But in fact, it turned out that there was no theory of technology and I spent kind of eight years struggling to come put together some version of it for myself. And that's why I think the pronoun I appears in there more than I would like it to. Well, no, I think it's one of the things that makes the book charming and, and entertaining and accessible. You, you write very well. I, mean, I want to talk about your, the way you wrote the book as mm-hmm. much as I do in, about the, the content of the book. But let's, let's talk about the content of the book. It was so interesting to me when you talk about, you know, the, you were saying you were looking for a, a theory of technology, but you found a bunch of really interesting stuff. I mean, I, I'm just thinking uh, of Johann Beckmann, who, who mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, I guess the, the inception point for our modern concept of technology. Um, Beckmann w- was a German um, professor um, who actually coined the word technology in German, the, tech, the German version of it. And so he was the first to treat the stuff that we've been making all along as its own system, as its own entity, its own unity. And so he, he, he designated as, oh, well, all the stuff that we're surrounding ourselves with um, in 1820s or so, he said, oh, th- this is technology. Um, That term was later picked up by Charles Bigelow in English in 1829, and that became uh, the basis of a course at Cambridge University, and that was the first example in English where we had a name for the stuff that we've been making for, for a long time. Well, technology is much older than the 1800s, so talk about the origins of the word techni, which is a, you identify this, the the origins of the word, and I think that's a really right. interesting uh, concept. So the, the Greeks uh, was a Greek word in techni, and it meant, um, the closest that we might have is crafty, craft and crafty, or even ingenious. And so it was, it was, a, it was the word that they used for people who made stuff, that they, that they had the techni, and that there was um, uh, Odysseus and others had a certain techni, which was this kind of cleverness. Outwitting the um, the gods, and 
the idea was was that anything you made came from a genius in a person. We, so that was another term you might think of it. It was sort of an individual artisan would create something, and that genius, that technique, was something that came from them. The uh, idea of the technology shifted that to suggest, in fact, that it was not located in an individual, but was located in the sort of larger system or culture at large. And that was the shift from the Greeks to um, later on when we had industry. Now... You coin this term, and you call it the technium. It's a, a self-reinforcing system of creation. I, explain a little bit why you wanted to create this new neologism. It's a neologism, yeah. isn't it? Yes, it is. And well, you're a science I, fiction writer now. And I, Well, I did it very reluctantly. I, mm-hmm. I don't like to coin words um, uh, because I think usually we don't need to, and um, I think very few of them that you coin ever stick. Mm. And so I, I have no expectations this is ever going to take off. But I, I coined the word because um, I could not find anything that was really conveying what I wanted to. Using the word technology, as I do on the cover of the book, um, is a little distracting because we normally think of technology as individual items, like the iPhone you may have in your pocket or the refrigerator in your kitchen or uh, the car that you have in the garage or the wires that we have in our house. We think of them as individual artifacts. And um, what I'm suggesting with the word technium is that each one of those artifacts requires uh, hundreds, if not thousands, or maybe multi-thousands of other technologies to create it and maintain it. So the iPhone is based on thousands of other intermediate technologies, and each of those intermediate technologies may require hundreds of other supporting technologies under, under them. So the iPhone sort of is part of and represents and kind of an ecosystem. That's what I was thinking. It's the ecosystem of technology. It's an ecosystem or a superorganism of technology. And when I, when I, so when I the say... The Gaia. Exactly. So when I say technology, I'm using it in that kind of plural sense, but that's very confusing because we think of individuals. So I use the word technium to suggest the plurality of the whole system itself. So... It's not just the set of all these things. It's that the fact that all these things are codependent upon each other. They cannot be pulled apart. And that larger system has two exhibits two properties that all large systems do. One, the, there is an emergent behavior that the whole system has that the in, that there, that's not present in any of the individuals. Okay, So it's mm-hmm. just like an ant colony. The colony itself exhibits behavior that none of the ants themselves behave. Sure, exhibit. you could look at an ant forever and not see anything like what the colony is. Exactly. So that's one thing that the tech team has. The tech team mm-hmm. has its own behavior that's not present in the gadgets of it. And secondly, like any system, that, that the system exhibits certain recurring patterns, certain tendencies, and certain urges that are independent, again, of what the parts want, that, that, that there is a... Uh, a general bias. And so when we're talking about the technology, I would say that the technium exhibits certain inherent biases that are independent of us humans in our selection and choices. In, in the same way that our ecosystem exhibits 
tendencies and biases that are completely independent of us, no matter, even though we have some influence over them. Well, and I would even say it stronger, and, and this is a large part of the book, the an ecosystem will exhibit certain tendencies independent of the choices and activities of some of the particular biological organisms in it. So, um, in other words, let's go back to the ant colony. The ant colony has exhibit uh, certain um, patterns again and again, independent of whatever those little army ant chooses to do. If they choose to do something different, it doesn't really matter because over over the long period, the colony will still exhibit those tendencies that are inherent in the colony. Okay, and so um, the larger extension of that is that evolution has directions, recurring patterns, channelizations that tend to constrain it in certain trajectories. And this, I have to say, is a controversial minority view in evolutionary biology, but it is a view that's, that, that, that I find persuasive. Now, this is something, stepping back to talk about the book itself, that you yeah. do throughout the book. Um, you take minority views. You take a lot of chances in this book, and I think that makes it. That's what makes it um, a gripping yeah. book to read and entertaining. And it gives it a kind of a personal edge. Yes, I'm not afraid to be wrong. <laughs> well, that's important. Yes, I, right, right. Because I'm, I'm taking chances, and um, uh, here's what I've learned. Um, I've learned a little bit to go with my hunches in this because I probably, you know. Being almost 60 years old, I've, I've been around long enough to see heresies um, come to be proven true and impossible things come to be. And so, um, uh, and I think that's sort of more interesting to me and more productive. I mean, I learned this from Lynn Margulis, who is a, a biologist who has some very radical ideas, and um, she talks about productively wrong theories. Mm-hmm. So that by stating them in kind of a pure form, um, even if you're wrong, just um, making that case and planting kind of a stake in the ground and identifying it very clearly can be very, very productive. And so um, it may be that in, you know, 50 years from now, people will laugh at this, these, some of the ideas in here, but I believe that they'll still be referred to because I, I think I was able to articulate them in kind of an integrated way that, that makes it very clear what the idea is. And so the idea, of course, here is that there is a direction that runs through the universe, that runs through life, and that runs through the technium, and it will run through us and beyond us. And that technium direction um, can be articulated. Now, that's the thesis of the book. One of the things I think that's interesting is that the way you write this and research this is you go back and look at human evolution, mm-hmm. and you talk about the the Great Leap and, and the sapiens. Mm-hmm. And this is something I was just talking about with Graham Hancock, mm-hmm. who has who is very interested in this. Mm-hmm. This moment somewhere around 50,000 years ago when we really first became what we would call recognizably mm-hmm. human. Right. So... My term for this, again, and this is I'm way out of my my league here, um, but my term for this is this is is this other kind of minority view called sudden humanity. The idea that humanity, uh, as we kind of understand it, came f- fairly suddenly in you know archaeological time period. So whether it's you know 
over, say, 10,000 years, that would be archaeologically very sudden. And um, I, I pinpoint that to the acquisition, or I actually would say, excuse me, the invention of language that really kind of really completely changed our um, behavior because we suddenly had access to our minds. I think Neanderthal and other primates were smart, but they didn't have access to their smartness. I love that idea of access to your minds because that's, right, right. that's a really, that's easy to grasp. Right. So, so, so they were thinking, but it was kind of hit or miss things. They, they couldn't direct their smartness. There was no way to, to actually for them to perceive that they were smart. And I think what we do with language is actually we can structure it into a little story. Mm-hmm. And so by this story, giving, giving words to things helps us see it so that we can actually then manipulate it and be aware of it and um, reach into and have access to it. And I think that was the, the thing that really changed us because then we could begin to actually communicate it. So, so the thing about language is that two communications, it allowed us to communicate ideas to each other, but also to communicate ideas to ourselves. And, and I think, too... That what one of the things you just talked about right. is the uh, and uh, is the importance of narrative right. and story, the ability to as a means just of uh, of uh, memory uh, like RAM, random access memory, right, right, Lan- right. language, story, language on one th- individual words. That's the skeleton. Sure, that's sure, a wall. Right, right. Are one thing, but the ability to say that skeleton is near the wall. Is that's a story, and that tells that allows us to store a useful bit of information. Right, we can store it, and we also can communicate it, and then we also become aware of it. So those three things are going on. Once we could communicate to others, we could have the grandmother effect, which meant that we can actually. I move. love the idea of grant the importance <laughs> right, of grandparents. Right, that's right exactly. Really we great. can move forward our learning uh-huh. over over generations because if the average age of uh, uh, you know, a pre-human uh, was uh, 20 years, 23 years, that means that your parents are most likely going to die before you're even a teenager. And um, there's very little learning that would going to be passed on. But, if, but when you had grandmothers who could communicate, uh, you could tell the grandmother something, and then they, she could then tell the children, you suddenly had a continuity that um, then increased longevity and so at a certain point, um, we actually had grandmothers living long enough they could do it in person. But in the beginning, it was just communicating that with language. You know, one of the things that interested me in this book was that you described language as the first singularity. Mm-hmm. And I thought, boy, he can use that word and he doesn't have to tell us what it means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the word singularity means, well, culturally it means... Um, an acceleration or a phase change. It means a phase change in the culture so that uh, the, the change is imperceptible before it happens. Uh, and so it's, we seem to be blind, and then we can see it in retrospect. It's, of course, a, originally it was a mathematical, physical sense of the uh, horizon on a black hole where no information would go beyond um, once you went into the black hole, you cannot have any information come out. But the Werner Vinge and other science fiction writers sort of hijacked the term to suggest that change in the technium is happening so fast now that when we look forward to it, uh, where it's going, how fast it will accelerate, it would just 
accelerate to the point where it would become a singularity to us, meaning that we would not be able to imagine what happened beyond it. I actually tried to avoid using that word in the book mm-hmm. because um, well, I think this I think this singularity is only one of several different scenarios for the future, and I didn't really want to get involved in either defending or arguing against it because that's a much more complicated um, book in itself. Well, I think you've got plenty in your book to keep us going. (laughs) You know, one of the things that strikes me about this book, the reason I really liked it is Mm -hmm. that as I read it, I felt it was you were approaching the reader with a discussion, Mm -hmm. not a lecture. And I think that's what makes the difference in this mm-hmm, book. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes this book more timeless. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think more relevant to, mm-hmm. to us because it, 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 you allow yourself to be wrong and allow us to mm-hmm. question you. Mm-hmm. And that gets us more engaged oh, in, what you're, in what mm-hmm. you're writing. Good. Yeah, I, 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 as much as possible, I, I, um, I wrote the book on my blog. I wrote it out loud. I wrote three times as much that, that is actually in the book. And one of the things that happens when you write out loud is that you get a lot of feedback. And so I think um, I was responding to people who um, uh, I, I already knew what the objections were, so I was actually going to try to ob- respond to objections that would have normally come up anyway later on, but I was responding to them in anticipation that they would be coming. And I think um, that sense of the readers of the blog keeping me honest and trying to um, make sure that I acknowledged the places that um, where there were counter arguments or whether it didn't hold up or whether it was the argument was weak. I think that informs the book as it finally was made. That's a really, I, I did not know that you wrote yeah. this as part of a blog and that in retrospect, that makes sense. But reading it without that knowledge mm-hmm. still, I think, gives you a really nice sense of being engaged, mm-hmm. the author wanting to engage the reader. Mm-hmm. Now, you talk about the six kingdoms and the seventh kingdom. And so tell us what the seventh kingdom is mm-hmm. and, and about the extended human. This, I think, is a really interesting idea. Yeah, well, there's—I there's, there's, um, start with this idea. I mean, I talk about— the origins of technology, and there's several different ways to see it. One is obviously it preceded the Industrial Revolution. We've already mentioned the fact that the Greeks had a kind of a word for things that we were making. But it also, um, uh, you know, very early on, um, making tools redefined us as humans. In fact, I argue in the book that humanity itself is a is an invention of our minds, that we made ourselves, that we invented things like cooking, which is a kind of an external stomach that digests food that we would not be capable of digesting ordinarily. And that additional nutrition changed our teeth and our jaws and our enzymes. And so here we have an invention of ours that is reshaping us physically, heritably. So we are not today the same people that walked out of Africa. In fact, we are so symbiotically codependent on technology that um, if we eliminated every blade, knife blade, and spear, and everything in the world, and had literally nothing, we would not be able to survive because we have physically changed ourselves to become dependent on technology. And so, in that sense, we are both the creators and the created. We're kind of self-created. We have created humanity. We 
we are the first domesticated animal. And in that sense, um, the origins of technology are in humanity, and that's why there's sort of no limits to technology, because we're always going to become more human the more technology we make. And so I'm suggesting that, that the, um, the origins of, of this really go back to the beginnings of our own identity as humans. You know, one of the things I, I liked is this idea of you compare human and, and biological evolution. A lot of this book involves a look at what biological evolution does mm -hmm. and how that the parallels in machine evolution. Right. Now, first off, I have to ask you a kind of right. funny question. Have you ever read a story by Terry Bisson called They're yes. Made of Meat? Exactly. <laughs> They're Made of Meat. It's Okay, and so for those who don't know, it's a little sh very short um, science fiction short story. And this guy is kind of intergalactical scouts going about, and they're looking at planets, and they're coming back, and this guy is saying, you won't believe this, but those beings down there, they're made of meat. You know, like thinking meat. And this guy says, what do you mean meat? It's, it's like, you know, it's impossible. It's like, it's too weird. Because, of course, in that corner of the universe, uh, intelligent life is all, you know, silicon and metal, whatever else they end um it's the technium. Yeah, exactly. It's a technium. And the concept that you'd have this sort of organic thinking machine is completely ridiculous to them. And um, uh, will we go that far? And am, am, I am I suggesting that we will go that far? Um, I, I, I'm agnostic. I don't know. I'm not suggesting either way. But what I am saying is that um, the normal distinction that most of us walk around with in our heads that there is a huge unbridgeable gulf between the things that we make and the living things is really wrong. That in fact, living, the essence of life is really not in the DNA, in the meat. It's in the information processing. It's in, the, it's in that ordering of information. And um, that's the same thing that's in the technology and the technium. And we can know that because we can actually, we have actually moved uh, the process of evolution, real evolution, moved it into computers and have evolved, Darwinianly, evolved code that we're running in our software um, programs right now. And we have also used DNA, which is in our guts, to actually perform computer calculations in parallel, solving the traveling salesman problems. And so um, we, we have plenty of evidence that that the two of these things are really two facets of the same process. And I'm extending that idea, which I explored in my first book, to further saying that while we can see the same, there actually is a continuation of the same self-ordering aspect of life. So, I mean, if we think about where life came from, you know, 3.7 billion years ago, the current understanding of it is quite amazing. He says that life assembles itself, and it makes itself more and more complex. And so all the complex organisms we see, including us and giraffes and the blue whales and the kangaroos and the orchids, have all come from one semi-crystal DNA molecule. The first one in all life is actually connected back. It's this it's this one life repeating again and again with variation. 
and that that's that that thing self assembled itself so we have this example of something uh, complex coming from something simpler that something simpler or we can say it that way something simpler making something more complex and that mystery is actually extended through life all the way through us and our minds where our minds are made from something even simpler and now we're making more and more complicated technology for something simpler and I'm saying that the, that cosmic evolution is connected it's a continuum we're actually connected all the way through that the stuff out there that we make with our minds is actually connected back to the stuff that preceded us. And, and you make a really powerful argument. I love when the way you talk about convergent evolution mm -hmm. and how completely different trees came up with the same eyes mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. feathers. And then you talk about the realm of scientific invention, mm -hmm. how there are, you know, how many people were on the verge of coming up with the light bulb at the same time. And I think right, that's right. a really powerful and, and interesting argument. Yeah, yeah. The idea is, is that um, if you read history very carefully, we have this kind of again, a popular idea of the lone genius working in their basement at all odds against the uh, establishment coming up with this brilliant idea. And that almost never happens. Almost in every, well, I mean, it may happen, but almost in every case, someone else is also inventing it at the same time independently. <laughs> uh -huh. Okay? And usually there's, there's three or four people who are working on the same idea at the same time. And that most, that, that the norm for inventions is that they're simultaneously independently invented. And what that means is that, um, that's true, not just for now, but in prehistory as well. And what that means is that um, when the precursor ideas or uh, inventions for necessary for this kind of ecology of things required for a new invention are all ready and there, then the next adjacent step is inevitable. And um, in fact, the general sequence of technological inventions are also inevitable in the large scale, not specifically, but just in the rough boundaries of them. We can see that same thing in prehistory on different continents, which were separated in prehistory, that the sequence of inventions were very, very, very similar. And um, that suggests to us now that what's coming next in this large scale is inevitable. Whereas the speciation of it, the variation of it, the expression of it is not inevitable, the next thing that is coming is inevitable. You know, it made me think of that there are, I guess, platonic ideals mm -hmm. out there that are waiting to, to be realized, that mm -hmm. the light bulb exists in a kind of platonic universe mm -hmm. long before there was even electricity, mm -hmm. and, and that there's something out there now that exists mm -hmm assembled from bits of our technology or maybe stuff that comes after it that we might not even be able to wrap our brains around mm -hmm. why it would want why would such a thing would want to exist but it's out there waiting to happen yeah it's out there i mean there's there some constraints that that are developmental constraints governed by just the basic nature of physics and chemistry so you know a lot of the there's scaling laws in biology meaning that the ratio of the weight and height and size of different beings follow a, a very strict law simply because they're made out of matter and cells have 
volume versus surface that you know water requires and things like that so there's there, there are scaling laws that are involved in biology and other power laws of distribution that again mostly based on the fact that that physics and chemistry kind of constraints what's possible mm-hmm. okay and so um, that's one of the constraints in evolution the second constraint is this internal one that, we, that I was talking about earlier where you have a system and when you have a system like say your genes you're in your chromosome a lot of the genes are, are going to express themselves they're made to um, create a protein but there are a number of uh, a, a very large number of genes whose job it is is to turn off or on other genes and some of those genes that are turned off or on or, or will also turn off or on other genes and sometimes that circuit will come back to the original gene which is being regulated by other genes and so you have this recursive loop that goes around and around which is very common in any kind of systems like ecologies where you have this bird supports this butterfly which supports this ant which supports this bird and you have these recursive loops going around and whenever you have these recursive loops going around these infinite loops you get really weird recurring emergent patterns and so they tend a bunch of them tend to move the system so that the same thing happens again no matter how you start it now you another term you coin is uh, I'm going to try this exotopy? Exotropy. Exotro- exotropy. So right, that's a really interesting term. Right, I, it's the opposite of entropy. But you right. m- explain what you mean because it's not yeah. just. So I call it exotropy, and some people call it extropy. Either one is the same thing. Uh, everybody knows sort of what entropy is. It's this sort of unavoidable decay of energy in the universe where things run down. So whenever whatever you do something. There's a little bit of entropy produced, so so some of the energy is is not saved. It's used up, wasted. So it's kind of idea, and the idea is that eventually the entire universe comes down to this flat, featureless death. It stops. Heat death of the heat, universe. Heat death. It's just the end. And um, but while that's true, and there's no argument about that, in different corners and different parts of the of the universe we see this other thing where things are running up where there's increasing order and of course life is a good example but even the sustainability of a spinning galaxy or even of a star which can maintain and build up order over time so the stars are actually a little furnace that are making heavy metals they 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 take uh, elementary single um, molecules of hydrogen and helium and they actually you know fuse them together to make heavier metals and they spew them out over billions of years and those heavier ones are gathered again by other stars and and uh, made even heavier until we get the heavy metals so here you have this billion year sustainable ordering increasing order in the celestial bodies and occasionally out of them come planets which gather these heavy metals and they have atmospheres which are self-sustaining and then out of that may come life which is actually increasing order. So so against sort of all odds, we have these uh, threads of increasing order and I call that exotropy. It's in the scientific liter- literature called negative entropy. It's a double negative and so I use exotropy. 
to indicate that this is a positive force, a mysterious force to us, not a supernatural one, but one we don't understand, mostly because we don't have very good definitions of what complexity or order is. Mm -hmm. We don't have any quantitative uh, metrics for those. But intuitively, we see this increasing order happening, particularly at the leading edge. And um, that term or that force is what is actually animating the technium. This is the same drive that's going through that sort of wants increased diversity, it wants variance, it wants uh, complexity. It's moving through and it's a self-created force just like life is. And it's interesting too that you point out that uh, computer chips are, are the the most uh, the most heat the the most energy content, dense. the most energy dense things in in the universe or right. that we know of right that we know about so one of the kind of progressions uh, and this is a book about long term progressions mm-hmm. um, one of the progressions we see is a move for the amount of energy ergs per second per gram that's moving through a, a bit of matter and um, and this is over the duration of the system itself. Um, and it turns out that despite the intense energy that we see in fusion, um, that that's sort of diluted by the long life of, of these stars and the, um, and, and the weight of them, that in fact the amount of energy that's flowing through a sunflower is actually denser than the sun. Mm. And the amount of energy flowing through technologies even more than living systems and the most dense of all the technology things that we've made is your computer chip and if there's sort of more energy flowing per gram per second through a computer chip than anything else that we're aware of in the universe and that is there's so much energy that in fact it's a real challenge for the designers of computers because this is something that's near exploding I mean or melting and this is a this is the design challenge for chips is that the, the energy density is so great that they're figuring out how can we put more energy through this. You identify something, what you call deep progress. Right. And I like this term. This is, mm-hmm. this is an, an interesting term because, and the way you start this out is with what I call a king's ransom study. Mm-hmm. So explain about your king's ransom study because this is fascinating. What, what led you to decide to do that? Well... Um, I was I was really uh, I wanted to to I start off to try to show that the same kinds of things we see in the biological living world where we see increasing numbers of species of things is also happening in the technium and it turns out that um, while we've been actually not very good at doing uh, censuses or population studies or inventories of all the living species on Earth we're even worse about doing it in the technium and there's there were very few cases where people were trying to count out how many different things we've been making. And so um, I gave my daughter, who was young and enthusiastic at the time, the, the assignment to count the number of species of man-made things in our house here. <laughs> and um, uh, to see if I could get an assessment of that. And then I started to look at the inventories of the past of people who had um, things, including poor people as well as wealthy period people, and that included, um, wealthy included, 
King Henry VIII. When he died, they did an inventory of everything that he had in his household. And his household doubled as the basically the bank, the treasury of England. So the number of objects in his house was about 18,000, which we could say basically that was the entire wealth of England. The number of objects in my house was close to 10,000. So I was not that far behind. But the important thing is that it wasn't really the number per se that is really important of wealth because um, all the wealth of King Henry could not have bought one tube of antibiotics to save his life. He could not have, none of his, his entire wealth could not have bought a flush toilet or air conditioning or refrigeration or a comfortable ride of 100 miles. He was unable to buy those things and a rickshaw walla in living in India today could afford those. And so in a certain sense, the rickshaw walla is wealthier than King Henry was. And that's because the rickshaw walla has more choices, more options, more deeper progress than because of the additional two or you know whatever it is, 400 years of technological evolution. This theme of choice comes up a lot. That's, uh, I think, one of the core issues mm -hmm. in this book is that the idea that the having a choice is more, almost more important than what your choices are. Very well said. And so I, what I'm saying is that the common vernacular, uh, orthodox, conventional wisdom is that technology is neutral. You hear that a lot among technologists. Oh, it's neutral. The hammer is a hammer. You can either use it to, to knock somebody out or to build a house. And um, I'm suggesting, no, actually, while it's true that every new technology will create many, many problems and that there is a tendency to say, well, those problems kind of uh, counterbalance or weigh against all the benefits, and so it's neutral. I'm saying the fact that that the invention of the hammer brought a brand new choice between the evil, the harm and the good, that that choice itself is a good. And that new additional choice that did not exist before slightly tips the overall balance to the good. Okay, so every new thing is producing just as many problems as solutions, but the fact that you now have a choice, new choice between problems and solution means that it's slightly in the good, and slightly in the good is sort of all we really need because that's compounded over the years to make a civilization. The compound interest of positive development. Exactly. A half a percent is right. works out well over 4,000 years of exactly. civilization. Exactly, right, exactly. You're probably the first person to ever argue the virtues of slums. Yes. <laughs> and I, I right, enjoyed right, right. this. <laughs> right. Well, and... and, and um, I went, it's I went, persuasive. Yeah, I went through that length to indicate the fact that um, we normally see uh, this migration to urbanization in a negative light. We, we imagine people being pushed out of these beautiful homes um, for other reasons. But I think there's actually a pull to this, um, and that pull is the attraction of choices and opportunities. And it's the reason why we don't see people normally go back in the other direction. And... Uh, the reality of moving to the urban areas is that they're slums, but in fact, slums are kind of just the precursor great cities that we all know and love. And um, there's plenty of historical 
material from all the great cities of the world, including London and Paris, where um, today the heart of the stuff that we so much um, enjoy about them were actually built by slums, slum residents. They were edge cities. They were they were shanty towns. They were disorganized messes, but they uh, evolved over time um, and became better. And I think the same thing will happen with the slums of today, although I have a bet with an English guy on about whether that's happening in, um, you know, Mumbai and, and Kenya and Rio de Janeiro. Um, I think that that's, we have evidence already that that's, that's taking place, but um, whether it's going to happen in two generations is our bet is about, I don't know. Um, I believe it will, but the bet will prove out. The virtues of gentrification. Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> if you go into those cities, which, I mean, if you go in with open eyes and uh, there are slum tours, um, what you see is that there's far more working there mm-hmm. than it appears, and that even as dismal and as um, smelly as they are, um, they are still in many respects preferable to the um, tidy but prison-like options that they may have in their villages. And so um, they come to the cities because they may have education, because they can buy uh, medicines that are available, because they have a choice of doing something different than farming, and a host of other reasons. Um, And that uh, increasing choices and options is what technology gives us. And I view a city as basically just one of our largest technological inventions. And that's a really interesting perception. I love the perception of a, of a city as a, as a machine. And, mm-hmm. and once you say that, it makes such perfect sense. And, mm-hmm. and that's one of the, I think, the virtues of this book is and just by saying things, mm-hmm. you give the reader a lot to think about. And all of a sudden, we look up from our books and go, mm-hmm. oh, my God, mm-hmm. I'm, in, I'm not where I thought I was. <laughs> exactly. Now, you, you talk about the, the triangle of evolution both in terms mm-hmm. of uh, machines and, and biology. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's a three-part with the functional, the what you call the functional, which is mm-hmm. the adaptive, the, mm-hmm. the survival of the fittest. Right. Then the other part of the triangle is the uh, historical, the contingent. Mm-hmm. There was a mm-hmm. catastrophe that wiped out right. this and changed everything that sure. way. And then the third part is a little more, uh, I think, controversial, which is the structural, what you call the inevitable. And that's... Mm-hmm. A convergent evolution, and that's not but, not everybody's but, buying that. No, that's no, not everybody's buying it. And in fact, there's um, a book is being reviewed this Sunday in the New York Times, book by evolutionary biologist who doesn't who doesn't <laughs> buy this. He's uh, orthodox, and so um, uh, and and the orthodoxy is that there are no laws in biology. There is absolutely no direction. It's something we imagine or impose upon it, and. Um, uh, the, you know, we intuitively, everybody intuitively feels that there are that there is this increasing complexification and stuff. And so, um, the, the the challenge is, is again, um, when we come down to actually try and measure what we mean by something like order or increasing order, or even something as simple as information, we realize that we basically have no idea. 
That's a, well, one of the things I love is that you point out we don't have a good definition of information, complexity. Order. I mean, terms yeah. we throw around all the time right. actually mean very little when you right. start to parse it down to sort of hard sure. nails. I mean, I've been going around asking some, you know, the, the premier physicists of the world, uh, is information conserved in the universe? And they sort of say, basically, they smile and say, that's a really good question. We have no idea. Okay, so here we have an information economy. We have we, we, we have everything based on information, and we have no idea whether it's conserved, whether there's more information now than before, and um, uh, and, and then you know, going back to the entropy issue, which is also very related. The the theory, of course, is that the universe is running down, so that means there must be a huge amount of order at the very beginning of the Big Bang. Where did that order come from? Nobody has the slightest idea. Mm-hmm. There's no explanation. There's not even an attempt at an explanation. And so when people say that we know everything, they're so far off the mark. But more importantly for this book is that the, some of the key concepts that we have for understanding what we're doing, we really have no idea right now about what they are, let alone like ideas like dark matter and dark energy. I'm talking about even, uh, at least we have definitions of matter and energy. We don't even have definitions of information at all, or complexity. So that presents a real problem when you're talking about biology, particularly since we have an example of one. We have a case study of one on this planet. It's very hard to do experiments about, you know, trying to do the experiment or rerunning it to see whether or not the same things come out. But, but interestingly, with gene sequencing, we now have the ability to actually do experiments and rerun them. And my interpretation of what they show is that, in fact, um, we can get similar things come out, that there is this um, inherent order and channeling, and that there is this triangle, that there's not just Darwinian um, uh, adaptation fitting it, there's not just the contingency, the randomness, which really kind of propels it, but there is this other force which is steering things or constraining things in a positive sense of, of wanting to make certain things. And um, it sounds, you know, a little kind of mystical, but I'm, believe me, it's no more mystical than quantum, <laughs> quantum mechanics where two <laughs> things can be at the same place at once. Well, I, you know, I like this idea of convergence that Charles, right, right, right. Charles Fort had the idea that what he said was, if human thought is a growth, like all other growth, its logic is without foundation of its own mm-hmm. and is only adjusting constructiveness of all other growing things. A tree cannot find out, as it were, how to blossom until comes blossom time. <laughs> a social growth mm. cannot find out the use of steam engines mm. until it's steam engine time. That's right. Um, and in fact, that's, that, uh, that's been circled. Someone else actually said the same kind of thing, mm-hmm. that when it's, it, it, it kind of, it's steam engines when it's steam engine time. And I think um, uh, there is certainly that aspect that's happening that... Uh, that's why we have simultaneous invention, that when it's mm-hmm. the steam engine time, it's the next adjacent step, and then it will happen. And I have an example in the book where I talk about Mendel, who um, there are cases of people really kind of way, being way ahead of themselves. And um, uh, in when you're inventing things, being too far ahead is really as bad as being too far behind. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay, because absolutely, you have to take. It's not just that you have the idea, but you actually have to take the rest of society and the rest of the ecology has to bring it up to mm-hmm. it. 
And so you kind of have to wait till all the other parts are there. And I used one example of, of Mendel who was a monk and had been, you know, 35 years ahead of his time in discovering the laws of genetics, which were completely 100% ignored and then forgotten, um, not appreciated at all. And then this was the interesting part. I think it was five other or four other um, scientists independently and simultaneously rediscovered his work. They discovered his work or not? The, not no, the, they discovered his work. Oh, really? Independently <laughs> and simultaneously in, rediscovered his work and brought it forth within one year. Really? Because it was time that they could finally appreciate what he had done. Because until that time, it just made no sense. Gene therapy time. Exactly. When, when it's time for genes, it, it's gene time. And so I think that, um, uh, you know, a, a lot of, lots of ideas and technologies have the same fault, which is that they are simply naked out there without that support of the ecology of all the other supporting ones. It's, only, it's in the mind of one person, and you actually have to populate the mind of many people with it. And so in a certain sense, the job of the inventor is, is to bring the rest of the culture along to them, just to communicate to others and others that, and, and get this idea into their minds, not just their own mind. Well, the, the great example you use, too, is not just if one person. It's if we all know, as you, point, as you point out in the book, we've all been bombarded with video phones for right. 50, 60 years. Right. And they've just, even though the technology's been there, it's mm -hmm. been there for even longer than that, as you point out. But even though the technology's been there, the culture right. hasn't been ready for it. And maybe right. that's just in part our not wanting to be seen in our underwear or not right, being right, right. prepared. But I think we're approaching that. And you, as you point out, we may or may not ever get there. Exactly. It may be, be one of those things that um, we can easily imagine, like jetpacks, but may never actually use. Um, so not everything that we can imagine will we make. And there's also things that, that we can, uh, can imagine that we can't make, you know, say, faster than light travel or, or something like that. We can imagine that, but we can't really make it because we can't imagine it enough in detail. So I, th I think um, technology and evolution can't make everything. There's lots of constraints, but that's not okay because um, still it can make so far more than, than, than we need or that we can use right now that it is essentially like it was limited list. Now... You talk, uh, tell us why Moore's Law is mm. pivotal to civilization. That's well, a pretty bold statement yeah. right there. <laughs> well, Moore's Laws are sort of a, a, one, another example that I use for one of these inevitabilities. It's an example of um, some, you know, if, if technology has an inevitability, what would an example be? One of them is Moore's Law. And Moore's Law, very simply, is this um, phenomena where um, the progress in the development of the chip is is a straight line progress it's on this curve or line that is absolutely unwavering and it's unwavering despite the fact that there's like people all over the world spending spending billions of dollars trying to make it go faster try, trying to find <laughs> yeah. it faster and there are people who um you know are taking their time and not trying to accelerate it, but it doesn't matter the, the overall thing is that there's still this unwavering line and um, it suggests that, in a certain sense, this technium system is being governed by this law, by this 
rate, we can seem to be able to change the slope of it, but not the fact that it's on this curve. And the slope may depend on the economic uh, culture, but the curve seems to be inherent in the nature of materials, in the nature of computation. It's, and it would suggest, though we have no proof, that on another planet in another galaxy far, far away, um, that when they're inventing com digital computers, they would ex they would f uh, experience exactly the same curve. It's so interesting, you know, and this leads us to this idea of choosing the inevitable. Mm -hmm. I I love the story of the Roman road mm -hmm. and the space shuttle. This is mm -hmm. a great example of of how our, our past overshadows us. Yes, and um, I've been told since I wrote that by a real historian of science that I might not have gotten all the parts of this correct, but the general thesis is that um, in Roman times, they had um, ox carts, which they do in most parts of the world, and these ox carts going along the roads that the Romans had were very active in building, long-distance roads, they would produce grooves in the stones. They were sort of paved roads, unlike dirt roads. They were paved roads, so they were sort of permanent, and the traffic would basically um, make... Um, permanent grooves in the um, pavements. And those grooves were the distance of two oxen yoked together. And when the chariots came along, uh, the long-distance chariots, they were made to fit in the same grooves. And you can kind of see this is where this was going. When um, they, went in, they came into England, they used the same width of those roads once they had get going because the chariots became standardized. They would, you know, no matter where they were, they were making them the same because they could move the chariots onto different roads. And um, when they came time to build carriages, horse carriages, they also built them to the same width so that they could go along these grooves. And then when they built railroads, they built them to the same width. And then when they came to America, the British, they built the same width. And then when they were making um, rockets to go to the moon, um, they had to be transported on the railways going through tunnels. And so the diameter of these fuel tanks <laughs> were restricted to the same width of the ox carts in Rome. And so here we have an example of the persistence of standards, which are set very early on, which continue, and how, we, and how contingency, in this case, can exhibit this long influence on technology. So it's to say that um, technology can be governed by things that we do earlier in its origins. That, and then these can um, exert, again, long, long uh, influence. And there are probably things today, which is sort of the other half of this, uh, that we are making that will probably be still influencing in 100 years from now, or 200 years, or 1,000 years. And um, it's very likely that some of the code and the Unix kernel? boxes, the Unix kernel, <laughs> TCIP, IP, or something, may still be used. <laughs> and even though with the person making it at that time thought this was a temporary, you know, I'll fix it later, whatever it's it is. It's a hack, yeah. It's a hack. <laughs> it's probably going to be there because when? it's now embedded. And so, um, and, 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 you know, there's some stuff in our own genes that way, too. 
when when computers of the 31st century are yeah. uh, telepathically communicating across one another with one another through uh, quantum substrata, they'll be using some remnants of the TCP <laughs> of Unix code. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you the most one of the, this mm -hmm. brings up something I think that you do very okay. well in this book, and this is one of the tools of nonfiction, uh -huh. which is metaphor and simile. Without sure, sure. these, I, uh, the book is nothing, and sure, yeah. your facility for these is is great. Right, right, right. Talk about developing these. Is this something that comes uh -huh. to you in a flash, or is yeah. it something that you kind of work out slowly? I think it worked out slowly, and I think I'm very aware of it because actually I believe that oftentimes metaphor framing. Uh, is as valuable, if not more valuable, than the actual facts that they're being framed, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that we understand things by having the right framework. And the book itself is an attempt to kind of make a framework for for technology. But uh, the way I work is actually uh, visually. So mm -hmm. um, I try to think about what it looks like in my head. I start off as a photographer and pointing to my book of photographs there, and um, I I try to to get a picture in my head of what this looks like. And so I start with kind of a visual metaphor and work back from that. That's really interesting. That, yeah. That's, that's, that's so interesting for, for this kind of material. Yeah. Um, you make a, a, have a very controversial, I think, chapter called The Unabomber Was Right. Right. <laughs> This is not this is not going to make you a lot of friends. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us why you think the Unabomber was right. And one of the things I love the beginning of uh -huh. this chapter: all the people who invented the most heinous weapons of of that have killed billions, uh, all thought you know they were fighting for peace. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I mean, you're referring to the fact that uh, the adventures of dynamite, um, Nobel. Um, machine gun, you know, um, airplanes, um, uh, submarines, all these folks believed in their hearts that this, that these inventions would help bring the end of war. Of course, this is right on the verge when they were being used in World War One, World War Two, <laughs> to, to just kill millions and millions of people, the worst carnage we've ever seen on this planet. And um, that also gives pause to people now who claim that the Internet will bring in the new era of democracy and, and peace um, or whatever it is. And um, I like to suggest that um, uh, powerful technologies will be powerfully abused and that they're not really powerful unless they can be powerfully abused. And that if we really will, I mean, the Internet right now is obviously the most powerful technology we've ever invented, it will be powerfully abused. No, it already is in China and Iran. Well, I mean, I mean yeah, not, but it hasn't really been powerfully abused yet, not but, yet. It, <laughs> but it will be. And um, uh, that chapter begins this, this idea that the Unabomber was right. And what he was right about, um, well, let me tell you what he was wrong about. Of course, the Unabomber is this guy, a mathematician, a professor of mathematics, who uh, retreated to the, to the woods uh, and um, decided that technology was his enemy, and he actually murdered. He, he made mailed bombs to people to blow them up. And um, he's definitely wrong about that. He's right about the fact that he saw that this technium was a system, a whole thing, a complex that had its own agenda, that was behave that was outer sort of like it had some autonomy, and uh, it didn't really kind of. It was beyond our our own individual actions, and that this thing out there 
was getting bigger, was getting stronger, was getting more autonomy, and um, it was acting as if it was a kind of superorganism. And in that sense, I think he's absolutely right. Most of the people who see this organism have, in my eyes, been the critics of technology rather than mm -hmm. the boosters. The only difference where, where, where we depart and where I think he's wrong in the fact that he, uh, his, he was wrong in killing people for this idea was uh, his conclusions about what the agenda was. Mm -hmm. So from his eyes, um, this thing, this technium, was, was robbing into us human individuals of our freedoms. It was just sort of, we, we were becoming Borg. We were just being um, uh, you know, uh, captured and uh, we're just cogs in this machine and we, and we had diminished uh, fewer and fewer and fewer choices. And um, I think that you know, just the, the general history of the world and the, and the power of civilization to increase longevity, to increase education, to increase choices, to increase living standards and everything suggests the opposite. That in fact, what the agenda is, is actually to increase our choices and options and bring increased freedoms. And that while it does have its own agenda in selfishness, it also has a dual nature of increasing our freedoms. And so I disagreed with him on that terms. Well, you also point out, uh, talk about the back to nature um, movement right. in, in that it really doesn't, ha and point out that many of the proponents really don't have an idea of, as to what exactly that means, what right. the implications of that are. Yes. So there are a lot of uh, the they're kind of they're called anarcho anarcho primitivists. There's um, classotarians. There are people who are anti civilizationists who actually think that the civilization is actually a disease, not a cure for anything. It's actually the disease that need to be cured. And um, it's hard for me to take them really, really seriously because. Most often, these are guys living in suburbia, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. writing about the, blogging about the end of civilization, and it, it just doesn't make sense to me. I've, I mean, I met another guy just just in Portland uh, on a talk there. It's like, you know, um, the thing about the Unabomber, of course, where he's, he at least tried to attempt to live that untechnological life. But the reason is that they aren't is because. They don't want to surrender the choices and opportunities that this brings them. And that brings back to choice. Right. They, you know, it's not hard to sell everything you have and buy a plane ticket and travel back in a time 500 years, 1,000 years, 10,000 years to live in a state of um, you know, hunter-gatherers. That's not hard to do. I, I can tell you the number of people making that trip is one or two a year maybe. Mm -hmm. um, because what you're surrendering is you're surrendering all these choices and options. And it's, and it's not because that's necessarily a, a hard life. In fact, my experience with the Amish... Um, who, I love your chapter on the Amish. Who, you have a who, who do have a much more restricted life of technology. The Amish life is very attractive. Mm -hmm. they, um, they're very supportive. It's, it's very comforting for people. They actually have a lot of leisure. Um, it, it's a very welcoming and humane uh, society, and they have a very low attrition rate because it really does tend to, to build people up. The price of that, there's two. 
One is is that uh, you have no choices in who you're going to be. If you're a woman, you're going to be a mommy. If you're a boy, you're going to do what your dad did. That's the choice. And and the second thing is is that they actually require and depend upon us outside to provide them the larger choices in which they can select from. So they're not self-reliant by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and they're also not anti-technology anti either. This is very selective. They're selecting it to, they're selecting very carefully these technologies like genetically modified crops, chemical fertilizers, um, disposable diapers, and the whole thing. And they're on the wall about cell phones. Right. And, and they do have Amish websites, which they use at the library. All <laughs> these things are happening. They're selecting it to, 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 to create this very, very um, intimate and sociable society, but they're doing so at the cost of, of, of uh, eliminating all these other choices. Now, I like this idea of convivial technology that mm -hmm. you have. This is a really interesting thing. And you talk about this in terms of the kind of complicated systems mm -hmm. that we create and how a complicated system doesn't make things any better, whether it's a space shuttle or a, mm -hmm. or security theater. I think uh, there, my favorite quote from Stanislaw Lem is, in a system of a million parts, if each part malfunctions only one time in a million, a breakdown is certain. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, has to, that's the problem with a lot of our multi-ultra-redundant systems. Well, that's true about the parts. However, from the very invention of high technology like computation um, from Johnny Newman and others in the Manhattan Project, when they were first making computers, they were making them from uh, vacuum tubes, which mm -hmm. were highly unreliable. I mean, they, they, they <laughs> failed at this enormous rate. And they always described what they were doing was to actually to make a system that was more reliable than its parts. Mm, mm -hmm. And this is actually what you get with these systems, is that you can actually get a system that overall is far more reliable than the individual parts. If you just multiplied the reliability of the parts together, you would get something that was less reliable. Mm, mm -hmm. But the genius of making these recursive loops and, and, and complex systems is that you can actually make systems that as a whole exhibit greater reliability than, than the parts do in some. And that's, I think, the solution to uh, the technium, is that what we're trying to do is constantly add layers of redundancy and uh, smartness and um, clever uh, you know, circuitry and all these other things to, and, and layers of evolution to, to, to make the whole thing far more reliable than even the individual parts are in the individual pieces, the iPhones and stuff, which we know, know are not very reliable. And so um, that's what whole systems do. We as a body, our body, your body, is actually far more reliable as a whole than even the cells, which in fact don't last, don't live very long. Now, you uh, talk about the trajectory, where we're going. Yeah. And <clears throat> you identify some, some different uh, aspects of it. Um, complexity, which you mm -hmm. say is ill-defined. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they're all ill-defined. <laughs> most of the things that we find most interesting in the world, you take life, you can take mind, consciousness, complexity. 
we, we don't have very good definitions of any of these. Um, and, there, and I would say basically all of them are continuums rather than binary. They're mm -hmm. not like, you're not like intelligent or not intelligence. There's tiny bits of intelligence that ant has some level of smartness and we can put those kind of smartness into the chips. They're, 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 they're a little bit. And so even consciousness, I think, must be a continuum. Uh, it's not a binary thing. And so um, uh, the trends that we see, the long-term trajectories that technology have are in simple. Over time, we're moving towards increasing complexity. So any kind of technology you can imagine today, you, it will become more complex and not simpler. The interface may be simpler, but the technology behind it will become more complex. There's a move to increasing diversity of things, increasing specialization. So mm -hmm. the first cell is sort of general. We have more um, highly diverse and uh, specialized cells in our own body over time. You know, we have skeletal cells, muscle cells, brain cells. The same thing with technology. We start off with like a camera. We have maybe specialized cameras, underwater, panoramic, uh, spy cameras. And then we can have specializations of those over time. So whatever we can imagine today, genetic sequencing, it will become more specialized over time. Mm. Uh, things become more mutualistic over time, meaning that they um, uh, share more of their, their being and their environment. So the first life was naked life on a rock and now a lot of life is just completely surrounded by other life and they never touch any rock at all it's the virtue of compassion exactly large. and so we have our technology will become more dependent on other technology a lot of the technology we make today is doesn't even touch us at all it's machines serving other machines um, and then we see uh, another large long uh, thread of evolvability and so um I love the idea of the evolution of evolution. Yes. And that makes such perfect sense when you think about it. It, it. it sounds like double talk, but it actually is a very profound idea, which is that what evolution sort of wants ultimately is to explore the, 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 pay, the possibilities of, of evolution, of how to evolve. So, so it's evolving different ways to evolve. And that means it's sort of like it's evolving different ways to change in a structured way. And, ever, and technology, we can see in some senses, is just that acceleration. It's sort of like, a, it's like a new way to evolve new organisms. And the, one of the ways I like to think about what the technium is, is it's a mechanism, a natural extension of life, the seventh kingdom. It's a natural extension of life to invent or discover um, types of things that biology and DNA could not get to by itself. Okay, so it's working through us to kind of populate the world with particularly types of minds that biology and meat space could not get to by itself, minds that meat couldn't make. And uh, the reason why that's important, I think, is because I think um, our own intelligence alone is not sufficient to understand the mysteries of the universe, to understand what quantum is or or dark energy or the, or the origins of, of order, I think it actually is gonna take us different kinds of minds, different species of minds, minds that think differently. And the only way we're gonna get those, I think, is, 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 is through the technium to, to actually make them. So evolution is sort of making other kinds of minds to comprehend itself. So human evolution leads to 
te- the technium and technological evolution, which is all just a part of the basic natural right, law, right. which is the universe wants to understand itself. Right, exactly. I, I, I believe so. That's, that, that's a mystical thing, but, you know, Carl Sagan and others were allowed to say this, and I think that... <laughs> um, um, I, I, I think that uh, what we... Um, uh, the, the, the important thing, I, I think, is that we see that when we're making these um, gadgets, when, when our lives are spent uh, producing things or inventing things, or we're a, lot, all, a lot of us involved in or making new stuff or, or selling stuff, or even as we're involved in our own consuming of stuff, that there's actually something bigger going on. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the message of the book, is that, is that um, uh, we should understand that when we're doing all this stuff, what we're really doing is actually increasing the possibilities of the, and choices in the world. And that's a good thing because it allows the opportunity for every person to find that right mix of, of, of instruments that helps them you know, to their full potential. And um, by increasing the uh, numbers of instruments and the varieties of instruments in the world, we're actually uh, allowing more people to, to have that chance. And we want to invent as many new instruments as possible because there are people born today who, whose inv- invention we have not yet made. And we want to make sure we can share their genius by making these new things. And so there is, in a certain sense, a, a, a moral dimension to increasing the amount of good technology in the world. And um, we also can understand that there's a bigger meaning to life, that, that, that there is this sort of arc of increasing complexity and increasing variation, increasing diversity, increasing order, that running through the universe. And we can actually align ourselves with that. So it's going to not just start in Big Bang, it's going to run through us and go on beyond us. And that, I think, is... Um, a story that we can be very proud of, to be part of. And we can be proud that we made the choice to read your book, which is What Technology Wants. I've been speaking with Kevin Kelly about his new book, What Technology Wants. Thank you for joining me, Kevin. It was a real pleasure. I really appreciate your questions. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom slash agony.